Well, happy 4th of July. It's been interesting because it's the first time since I've been here that a 4th of July has actually landed on a Sunday. Because of leap years, the last time that happened was 2010, and I didn't show up here till 2011. It's a little interesting. Never had a 4th of July on a Sunday before with you all. This is a day for which we can give thanks to God. No government is perfect or will be until the Lord returns, but the American experiment has afforded us a great deal of freedom for which we can give thanks, especially since the gospel of Jesus Christ has been free to go out in our nation. And, and in the scope of world history, that's it's actually pretty rare. Who knows what our future holds for our nation, but we can still thank God for the common grace we have enjoyed. And we can be reminded not to take our freedom for granted. And again, especially that freedom to practice and share our faith, which, which we still have. So we thank God for that. Although technically, this reminder comes two days late, because technically, the, the Continental Congress voted to separate from Great Britain on July 2nd. It was the actual Independence Day. It wasn't declared until July 4th. It's been celebrated on the 4th ever since, but started on July 2nd. That's one thing to declare independence, and it's another to gain independence. And after the declaration, it wasn't that simple. The colonists still had to fight for five long years to win that independence. And compared to the British army, colonists were outnumbered, outgunned, outsupplied. The British had better weapons, a little thing called a navy. Their soldiers were trained. They were led by proper generals. And the colonists were just a, a scrappy, ragtag bunch. On paper, the colonists never should have won their independence from the mighty British Empire. But that's what they did. And there are many factors contributing to their victory. But I think if you had to pick one, I would pick desire. That the colonists just wanted it more. And not just wanted it, they were desperate for independence. They longed for it. They hungered for it. They were willing to sacrifice for it. The British, on the other side, I mean, they had lots of colonies. They still had lots of territories. Not like they were just going to let America go, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. Their soldiers were fighting out of duty and command and obligation. But the colonists were fighting out of desperation and desire. This is their homeland. They, they weren't going to give it up. And so they clawed at victory. They, they sacrificed. They would do whatever it took to win victory. And history has told us time and time again that the victory tends to go to whoever wants it more. When man sets his heart on something, when he becomes desperate for it, where he has to have it, he becomes a force to be reckoned with and he tends to get it. And when it comes to America, we can again be thankful to God for the freedoms that were won for us by those who came before. But this, this whole thought, it makes me wonder, you know, if only men and women had that same hunger and thirst and desperation for God, this world would look pretty different. And if only men and women were that willing to fight for his kingdom and his righteousness, if they had the same desperation to see Christ known in the world and righteousness known in their lives, this nation and this world would look, I think, a lot different. And as it stands, it can sometimes feel kind of rare to find even such a person in the church. Where are those whose zeal for the house of the Lord consumes them? And where are those like Phineas who was jealous for God's name? I think you and I all know that now there are thousands of supposed Christians who will never turn off Zoom. They will never again darken the door of a church because they've realized it's not that important. They have other things to do. They 
other pressing priorities than the Lord. And then there are others who might show up at church every now and then, but you would never ever use the word zeal to describe their Christian lives. Maybe like hobby, but not zeal. They may attend church and check off some religious boxes, but if you followed them throughout the rest of the week, you would never mistake such a person as being zealous for the Lord, to seek God, to know God. It doesn't look like they're seeking the Lord and his righteousness at all. Now look, in reality, none of us seeks God or knows God as we should. Every one of us can be convicted of being cold-hearted at times. Just like how many of us can say we're always at perfect health? None of us. There's always room to grow, but that's why the more accurate measure of your spiritual growth is your desire. That desire. Do you desire the Lord? Are you just content the way you are? Are you the equivalent of, of like the spiritual couch potato? You're, you're eating spiritual junk food. You're not getting off the couch to do anything for the Lord. Or do you have at least a zeal to grow, to shed spiritual fat, to gain some spiritual muscle, to be better fit to serve the Lord and his kingdom? None of us has arrived or will arrive in this life. Our only hope to be justified before the Lord is, is entirely in his son Christ. Because we all fall short. Only Christ makes us perfect. But the Lord is pleased by those who hunger and thirst for him and for his righteousness. To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. To want to grow and serve him. And the Lord Jesus affirms that is the place of blessing. The one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is blessed. That's the message the Lord Jesus gives us in the fourth beatitude, which is our passage for this morning. You can take your Bibles now and open them to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, down in verse 6. And in case you're new with us, we're making our way through Matthew's gospel here on Sunday mornings. We just started the Sermon on the Mount, which itself begins with these beatitudes, pronouncements of blessing by the Lord. But our pace together has slowed way down in the Beatitudes. You might think it's too slow, but it's not. (laughs) These verses are worth it. And a couple years ago, our family was blessed to be taken on an Alaskan cruise. And most of the time, you're cruising full speed. But you get into Glacier Bay, and you slow way down, because there's so much to see. They slow down, you can take in all the sights. Then you get to the famous Mendenhall Glacier, You come to a full stop for hours just so that you can sit and look at a glacier. But you can take in this natural wonder. That's kind of like the Beatitudes. The whole Sermon on the Mount is special. and We need to slow down to appreciate the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. But seeing how in these opening Beatitudes, the Lord is giving us the basic blueprint for, for kingdom living, for righteous living. And we need to stop here. It's good to camp out a bit, take in this supernatural wonder of Scripture. And then less like a glacier, more like an iceberg, there's so much under the surface of these Beatitudes that it just takes time to fully explore the nature of this blessing that the Lord promises. And that's what we have here. He's telling us what it means to be blessed. I want to be blessed, approved by the Lord. I trust you do. We find it encapsulated here in these Beatitudes. 
We've made our way already through the first three of the Beatitudes. Today, we're turning our attention to the fourth one. It's found in verse six, but let's go ahead and read the three through six. We'll catch the opening four together one more time. Matthew 5, starting in verse 3, where Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's stop there for now. That's the first four Beatitudes. The second four are found in verses 7 through 12. There is an order to them. The first four really give us a roadmap into the kingdom. And the second four give us a roadmap inside the kingdom. The first four are more about how we relate to God. The second four more about how we relate to one another. But all of these Beatitudes relate to us spiritual characteristics that Jesus intends these words to be taken spiritually. It's not just the poor, it's the poor in spirit. And this is made clear from the Old Testament connection to his words. A student of scripture would quickly realize that so much of what Jesus says in these Beatitudes bears an unmistakable connection to Isaiah 61, which is a, a key messianic text. It's, it's spoken by God's servant, the Messiah. And he comes to bring good news to the poor, to the afflicted. He will comfort those who mourn. But you actually study that chapter, though. You realize in context, it's not talking about the financially poor. It's talking about the spiritually poor, those who are mourning over their sin. The sin which brought them exile. These people had been far removed from the kingdom reign of God because of their sin. But now they're broken over it, mourning over it. And the Messiah promises he will restore them. That through him, they will inherit the land. And just given the amount of verbal parallels between the first four Beatitudes and Isaiah 61, it's pretty clear Jesus is purposely evoking these promises. The Messiah has come to bring God's spiritual blessing to the spiritually poor. Those who mourn over their sins. And those who are made humble and meek, Lord will comfort them. He'll give them the land. He'll satisfy them with his righteousness. Because that's what it means to truly be blessed. These beatitudes reflect the spiritual blessings that accompany the Lord's spiritual kingdom. Remember, the whole theme here is the kingdom of heaven. And these beatitudes in turn reflect the heart attitudes that must be found in those who belong to that kingdom. Our focus today is on verse 6. It's, it's this hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not just talking about those who are hungry. Again, this is spiritual. It's hunger and thirst for righteousness. Where after you've been made poor in spirit, you've, you've seen your sin before God. You've despaired in remorse. Your sin humbles you. It makes you meek before the Lord. Your rebellious spirit is broken. That's when, though, you're finally able to see Jesus as the only Savior and your only hope. He's the only one who can give you what you truly need, which is righteousness. If you've actually walked through the first three Beatitudes in your life, you know all too well, before God, you're not righteous. I'm not righteous. We have no hope. 
You and I are unclean before the Lord. But Christ alone can make you clean. He can forgive you. He can remove the debt of your sins, grant you his perfect righteousness. And you come to this realization, it makes you finally desperate for him. You're seeing the weight of your sin, you cry out to him to save you. You find a hunger and a thirst for his righteousness, which only he can give. And the good news, though, is that the Lord promises to to give it to those who, who seek it. He will always answer that cry of faith. And God in grace will clothe you with his righteousness. What do you know? Just like Isaiah 61 foresaw. It's another massive connection to Isaiah 61 verses 10 and 11, which reads this. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Verse 11 says, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. This is God's doing. This is something God will do. We are not earning this righteousness or achieving it. He's, he's giving it to us, clothing us with the robe of his righteousness. God promises to make us right with him through Christ, this Messiah. And that's enough of a quick flyby through the first four Beatitudes. We're going to land now just on verse six and spend the rest of our time taking a closer look at this, this cry for righteousness. We've seen in verses three, four, and five, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the hungry. Now let's find, or rather I should say, blessed are the grieving. Now let's find blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the the dependent here in verse six. Again, Christ says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, they shall be satisfied. Let's start off by just looking at how Christ describes the blessed ones in this beatitude, namely those who hunger and thirst. And y'all know what it means to hunger and thirst, but you might not know what it means to hunger and thirst like Christ describes, because this metaphor has been a bit lost on us from first world countries. You and I don't really know what it's like to go hungry. When was the last time you went 24 hours without food? And I'm not talking on purpose because you were on like a weight loss fast. I'm talking about you had no access to food for 24 hours or two to three days. That's when you know real hunger. We associate hunger with skipping one meal. And we've lost what it truly means to be hungry, which is, we have a word for that. It's called starving. That's what, that's what is behind this word here for hunger, painao. It means to be famished or starved. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, this word hunger was used to describe what happens during a siege. So a, a city is being sieged by an invading army. They've surrounded it. They've cut off all supply lines. They only have got the food they have on hand. The whole purpose of a siege was to starve them out. And inside the city, things would get desperate. It's like the siege recorded in 2 Samuel 6 of Samaria. It says that during the desperation, a donkey's head was sold for two pounds of silver. That's a lot of money for a donkey's head, which is seemingly worthless. What are you supposed to do with a donkey's head? You can't eat very much of a donkey's head, but when people are starving, they're desperate. 
They will do anything. They'll pay any price to eat. Just one of the basest human desires. That is hunger. That's the hunger Christ is evoking here. A true desperation for something. The same thing with this thirst. It's, it's going days without water. Have you ever gone days without any water? And we complain if for some reason we're forced to drink tap water. Like, woe is us. But we, we've taken for granted, I think literally the greatest luxury of all of human history, clean water on demand, unlimited. That's pretty amazing. But the ancient Jews, they lived in arid conditions. They knew well that the pain of deep thirst, they had to organize their entire lives and their travel around a water source. It's just a way of life. Otherwise, you die. So when Jesus speaks of hunger and thirst, you know what it means, but, but you don't know what it means. This is a deep hunger and thirst. Now that said, it's also evident he's not actually talking about hunger and thirst for food and water. This is an obvious metaphor because he tells us the object of this hunger and thirst. It's righteousness. This is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. But he forms a metaphor. He could say one thing. He said, blessed are those who really want righteousness. How much more powerful and memorable, though, to say, blessed are those who would die without righteousness, who hunger and thirst for it. Now, so far, we've found Old Testament roots behind everything Jesus has said in these Beatitudes. It's no different from the fourth one. This language of hungering and thirsting is used often in the Old Testament to depict a spiritual longing just for God, a deep desire to know God, to have God in your life. For example, Psalm 42, 1 through 2, where the psalmist says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. You also have Psalm 63, which, which David wrote, while he was in the wilderness of Judah, that's the same wilderness made home uh, by uh, John the Baptist, this arid, desolate, thirsty ground. The land itself was thirsty. And David says this in Psalm 63, uh, verse 1. He says, Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You know, the way in which a man dying of thirst yearns for water, David, the man of God, he he was yearning for the Lord, wanting God more than food and water. Because he says in verse 3, he says, your loving kindness is better than life. So he wants God more than food and water. And the good news is the Lord promises to give those who seek him what they want. David goes on verse 5 of Psalm 63. He says, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth offers praises with joyful lips. His hunger was satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will find him and he will fulfill them. It's really not far off from what Jesus says here in verse 6. You know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. This is a spiritual hunger and thirst, clearly. Its object is righteousness. It's only found in Christ. It's only satisfied in Christ. Those who go to him will find it and be filled. We need to keep going, though. We need to uh, not stop here. 
really to fully unlock the meaning of this beatitude, we need to understand what's behind this loaded word, this, this pregnant word, righteousness. That's not a small word in the scriptures, and we need to know what, what Christ means by it here. What, what is this righteousness? What does righteousness even mean? In a broadest sense, it refers to conformity to the claims of a higher authority. In this case, that would be God. It's the opposite of lawlessness. Lawlessness is all about nonconformity to some standard. Righteousness is perfect conformity to a standard. And we are righteous or right with God when we are in perfect conformity to his holy standard. And we must conform to, to God's commands. So how do we get to that point? How are we made righteous or right with God? Well, the, the starting point is to, to think about how the Jews of Christ's day would have thought about that, would have answered that, would have understood that. How did they think of righteousness? They believed that you earn or you gain this righteousness or right standing with God by keeping the law. Just obey the law. <clears throat> they even took it a step further. They added hundreds of their own laws, man-made laws and traditions that they thought further explained God's law. And so this massive tradition formed with an endless list of do's and don'ts and, and the select few who actually kept this law. They were the scribes and the Pharisees. They were seen as righteous. Like, okay, they're the righteous ones. They're actually keeping this whole law. But everyone else, they're just a sinner who's doing their best. <clears throat> but this whole view was completely wrong. And Christ himself, he, he will completely challenge their false understanding of justification and righteousness throughout his whole ministry, the, the whole gospel, but especially in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, much of what Jesus says here is directed against the religious leaders, uh, leaders of Israel who are the ones promoting this system of works righteousness. They're just the blind leading the blind. Look, for example, down at Matthew 5.20. Look how Jesus blows their understanding of righteousness out of the water. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.20, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. That would have been earth-shattering to the original audience. I mean, the, the Pharisees, these guys, they did so much to obey God. I mean, surely God would accept them. But Jesus says, no, if you want to really enter the kingdom, your righteousness has to go way above that. You've got to far exceed what these guys are doing. And then after this, in Matthew 5, Christ goes on to clarify what true righteousness even looks like. It's not about just keeping outward conformity to, this, to the law. For example, it's not enough just to not murder and not commit adultery. He goes on to say, if you want to be truly righteous, you must not even get angry with your brother in your heart. You must not even look with lust at another in your heart. Because that's murder and adultery in your heart. That's just as unrighteous to God. That God wants both our inner and outer righteousness. And even further, Jesus tears apart their man-made traditions, which they placed on top of the law. You know, I think that by adding all these rules to the Torah, that the scribes were making the law of God harder to keep. It's actually just the opposite because their laws were really, they function more like loopholes. 
And they're actually reducing the law of God and they turned it into a keepable standard. Like if you tried hard enough, you could do this. But they just didn't get it. Because even that is not enough. Can any man perfectly conform to God's standard? And that's how Christ ends this section in Matthew 5, the last verse, Matthew 5, 48. He tells them again, he says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the degree of conformity God demands if you're going to be righteous. You just have to perfectly conform to his standard your whole life. But that too would have been earth shattering because who is perfect? These religious leaders that they weren't actually righteous. All they had was a self-righteousness, but the Lord doesn't even accept that. Look at the next verse, chapter 6, verse 1. Same context, of course. But he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Then he goes on to give three ways in which the scribes and the Pharisees evidenced their hypocrisy. And he calls them out. This has no reward. God, God doesn't care about this. He doesn't accept this, this superficial outward conformity to his standard. That has no reward. That, that counts for nothing. On the inside, their hearts were far from God. Do you think God accepts the self-righteous hypocrisy? Now, really fast, turn over to Matthew 23. Later in this gospel, Christ will circle back and he will not mix words what he thinks about these religious leaders. These were the leaders of Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees, and so forth. And they looked to the common man righteous because, I mean, look at all they do. But here's what Christ says about them, Matthew 23, look at verse 27. A series of woes, and by the way, this is the opposite of beatitudes. Beatitudes are those who are blessed. These woes are those who are cursed. It's just the opposite. He says in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And so look, verse 28, So you too outwardly appear righteous before men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You can go back to Matthew 5, but you have to stop and appreciate the shock value of so much of what Jesus said here about these, these leaders and righteousness. These were the religious elites, and everyone else thought they're righteous. And Jesus says they're damned. That's what it means. Woe unto you. That means cursed. It means damned. That in reality, they're not righteous. They're not even close. If you want to appreciate the equivalent shock value, it's like saying today that the Pope isn't saved. It's like saying today, all those priests and bishops and cardinals, they're not in the kingdom of heaven. They're still lost. I mean, just the very suggestion of that seems incredulous to a lot of people, especially if you're raised in the Catholic Church. Because look, outwardly, those guys are the top of the food chain. Like, they're the most righteous people, right? Look at all they do, all the prayers, all the sacrifices, all the alms, all the obedience. I mean, how could that not be enough? They're doing so much. How could, not, how could God not reward them with heaven? But, but don't you get it? That's really the exact same position these scribes and Pharisees were in. And Jesus says of them, they're not even close. Why is that? 
Because the standard is absolute perfection. Yeah, you may have some guys who outwardly conform to most of God's laws, sure, but, but inwardly, they're just heaping up violation after violation each and every day. Their hearts are far from God. They're not righteous. God will not accept them. Hearing this might shock you. It most definitely shocked Christ's original audience. It offended many people. Why do you think these were the same people who killed Jesus? Even Pilate knew it was out, it was out of envy that he just offended their pride. Instead of humbling themselves and finding true salvation, they, they killed him. But the common person, the ordinary person, was just left to think about all this. He was just left to say, I mean, if this is true, if the scribes and Pharisees aren't even righteous enough to enter the kingdom, then who can be saved? I mean, if the Pope and all the priests aren't even in the kingdom, who on earth can be saved? But that is the million-dollar question. And that is the first point of Christ's teaching. You are meant to get to that point. And Christ's teaching, especially here in the Sermon on the Mount, is meant to drive you to a point of despair and exasperation where you say, like, this is too much. This standard is too high. Because I'm not perfect. I'm not even close. You're not perfect. Who among us could ever be considered perfectly righteous? No one. And that's the first point. No one can be saved on their own. No one can make themselves righteousness. You can't, you can't earn this. It's not something you can earn. We're already disqualified. Hasn't that already been made clear by the first three Beatitudes, if you take them to heart? And the one who's been made truly poor in spirit knows that his sin is like like an anchor tied around his neck. And he's been cast into the sea. And his sin is just taking him down to the abyss. And there's nothing he can do to save himself. Doesn't scripture confirm this? This is nothing other than the testimony of of scripture. Like Romans 3.10. It tells us that there's none righteous. Not even one. There is none righteous before God. Not even one. Romans 3.10. Isaiah 64.6. We learn in the Old Testament. It reminds us that all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. It's universal. This is all humanity. I mean, even the best we have to offer God is, is not enough. He does not accept our supposed good deeds from our hands because we are unclean. And so like Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. What can you do? Who can be saved? The answer is no one on their own. Thankfully, though, this teaching has a second point. I mean, first, that this, this truth, what Christ says about righteousness, it's meant to break us, to shatter our pride, our self-reliance, and our self-righteousness. It's meant to sink us into despair. But that's what's called the valley of vision. Because only down in the valley of brokenness over your sin, do you finally gain a vision of who Jesus really is and what he really did for you. There's only one door into the kingdom of heaven, but it's only found at the very bottom of this valley. The door is Christ. He himself is the holy one and the righteous one. He's righteous. Only he can make you 
righteous. That the righteousness you need to enter the kingdom, you can't earn for yourself, but he can give it to you as a gift, a free gift. And he offers it as a free gift, but only those down in that valley find him. This justification is offered to you by God's grace through Christ alone. Like Romans 3.23 goes on to say, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. You see that the huge pit the Jews fell into was to believe that, that this righteousness was something they could earn for themselves. But they failed to realize that their only hope to gain it was just to receive it as a gift. That God would give it to them. This is what the Apostle Paul later testifies about his brethren. Romans 10.3. This is a key verse. Romans 10.3. He's talking about the Jews who don't believe. And he says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, our self-righteousness will not do. What we need is God's righteousness. God's righteousness is found in Christ Jesus, the righteous one. So what we really need is, is somehow for us to be found in him. We need to be in Christ. But that that's just so happens to be what, what happens to you when you believe in him. When you come to faith in Christ, God puts you in Christ. His righteousness, his right standing with God is now given to you. Let's just be reminded what the Lord did for us. In the Old Testament, he was known as the righteous branch. And what did he do to save us? 1 Peter 3.18 puts it this way. It says, For Christ also died for our sins once for all. And then it says, The righteous for the unrighteous. That was the trade. The righteous for the unrighteous. So that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then Isaiah 53, 11, the, the great servant again. It says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And it says, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Our only hope to be justified, made right with God is through this Messiah. And though Christ himself was perfectly sinless, he was actually perfectly righteous. He actually did keep the true law of God perfectly. But yet he was the one who still died on the cross and rose from the dead. And he did that to pay for all of your unrighteousness, to bring you to God and to grant you his perfect standing with the Father. And that's the only chance we have at being reconciled to God. We receive this, the word for it is justification or being declared righteousness. We receive that one way. It's not by works. It's not by faith plus works. It's just faith alone. Galatians 2.16, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, you might think at this point we've taken a, a huge detour from the fourth beatitude, but, but we haven't. Just kind of put it together now. And Christ tells us, blessed are those who hunger 
and thirst for righteousness. How so? It just reflects the ongoing heart of the one who's gone through the first three Beatitudes, where you've come to see your sin. You're poor in spirit. You sorrow over your sin. Your unrighteousness before a holy God has broken you. And as a result, it makes you meek and humble. Your rebellious spirit against God is gone. You don't even pretend to justify yourself anymore. You know you can't. You used to be like the Pharisees and climbing this mountain of self-righteousness, thinking it made you closer to God. But now you've tumbled down into the valley of vision. You're made low by your true condition before your maker. But that's when you can finally see the door, the only door into the kingdom. You see Christ, the Savior. And look, he's already come. The door is open. He's on the other side. He bids you come. And his gift of forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life is just right there. And so for the first time in your life, if this is you, a sense of desperation forms. Only in that valley does this hunger form. It's like a deep hunger or great thirst. You're you're dying. You realize you're already spiritually dead, but now you realize you need Jesus. You don't just want him. You're desperate for the Savior. You need what only he can give to you. And so you start crawling to him and you bow before him, feeling even unworthy to look up. And like the sinner, you just, you beg and you plead. You say, Lord, have mercy on me. The sinner, what can you say to justify yourself? You cry out to him, Lord, I am unclean. But if you are willing You can make me clean. But the amazing grace is that every time someone approaches the Lord in that valley, he just promises to receive them. And he promises to say to them, I am willing, be cleansed and enter into the joy of your master. Listen to the Old Testament version of this. Another passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 55, one through three. It says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost, meaning it's free. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen to me and live to the one who's been made truly hungry and thirsty for righteousness will heed that call. It's the free offer of salvation. They will go to Christ with empty hands, just by faith alone. They will call out to him to save them and he will answer. In John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst then later, John seven thirty seven, If anyone is thirsty, let, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This is what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be satisfied. 
And the promise the Lord lays down for those who seek him like this is satisfaction. The word for satisfied back in Matthew 5, 6, it's a word that means to be made full. It was used of, of feeding a person or an animal to the point of completion. Like we're talking being gorged. You probably know the feeling, especially if you're like me and you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet and you treat it like a competition, uh, like a challenge. You know the feeling where you're just, you're stuffed. You, you don't want anything more. You are fully satisfied. Like when the Lord Jesus prepares a meal, everyone leaves satisfied. It's like when he took five loaves and two fish, even though there were 5,000 before him, he multiplied, he fed the crowd. And Matthew fourteen twenty says, they all ate, and it says they all were satisfied. Same word. They even had leftovers. That in Christ, we receive what he offers, namely righteousness, abundantly. There, there's more than we need, more than we could even use. We, we're made full. We gain the, the satisfaction of peace with God here in this life and in the next life. It's just overflowing. And this is what God does for us. You see how in verse 6, they shall be satisfied. It's in the passive voice. This is, this is something God does for us. This is a gift. We're not earning this or deserving this. An infant can know hunger and thirst, but it can do nothing of its own to satisfy its hunger and thirst. It's entirely dependent on another to provide. And likewise, those who, who turn to God as their father and Christ as their savior, they will be filled. He promises that their need for righteousness will be satisfied. God will provide. You hear all this, you have to ask yourself now that, is this you? Is Jesus your Lord? Is Christ your Savior? Have you ever done this? Have you ever truly cried out to him from that valley of despair over your own sin just for his gift of salvation? And righteousness. I always have to put these questions before you because in any crowd, there, there's always some who haven't. Or there's always some who've been raised to be more like, like a cultural Christian, like these Jews were just culturally Jews. I mean, faith easily gets reduced to just a way of life, a culture, where you do these things just out of motion, out of going through the motions, but your heart is far from God. And you can even work up the ladder and become a leader in the church and still be lost like the scribes and Pharisees. But have you perhaps been, been just going through the Christian motions? Have you been living as if it's, it's up to you to please God? You've got to make him accept you. You've got to make up for all the wrong you've done. Do you read your Bible out of obligation? Do you come to church out of guilt? Do you throw a little money in the offering out of penance? And if I were to ask you, how do you know for certain you're right with God? How do you know for certain you are right with God? What would your answer be? Would you point to yourself? Would you point to some things you've been doing? Would you point to some goodness in your life? Would you, would you point to how you've been living? Because if you did, you would instantly be disqualified because you're not perfect. Can you even be perfect for one day when it comes to God's standard? What will you say before God in judgment? You have to reach the only conclusion, that of the Apostle Paul, as he found 
Let me read for you Philippians 3, 5. Here is a man who had every boast of self-righteousness. He was at the top of that mountain. Philippians 3, 5. He's giving off his badges of honor. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. You know, externally, he was at the top of the mountain. He was above all. But then his foot slipped when he came to the realization that the highest mountain still can't take you to heaven. You can be on top of that, Mount Everest, and you're still infinitely far from heaven. And he was misguided. He tumbled down the mountain. All of his gain became loss. But then all of his loss turned into eternal gain because then he found Christ. And so he says right after this, Philippians 3, 7, he says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And listen to this verse nine doesn't get any clearer than this. It says that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He, he finally found the door. He found the gift. It's the only way. And you too can, can find this salvation, this justification today, if you would just look on Jesus with a humble faith. You have to declare yourself dependent on him. You're hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. But if you do that, you will be satisfied. And that will in turn lead you to a life of righteousness lived out. You have to say, going back to Matthew 5, 6, this fourth beatitude, it, it goes much further. Because not only does Christ include, I believe, imputed righteousness, but he also includes practical righteousness where you're now living righteously. Hunger and thirst are both present active participles, meaning these are meant to be ongoing realities. They start with salvation, but, but they're meant to carry on throughout the whole Christian life. That this hunger and this thirst for righteousness should always characterize us. This is actually one of the points we made when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount overall. That when you first come to this sermon, that the standard of righteousness Jesus presents here, at first, it turns us away. Right? He presents to us an impossible standard. That's meant to break our pride our self-righteousness. It's meant to humble us that we might bow before Christ. And as we go to him, we find mercy and forgiveness. We find the righteousness that this sermon demands given to us as a gift. But at that point though, Christ then picks us up. He takes us back to the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, here now, here's how you must live. Now that you've been given righteousness, now live like this. This standard is still impossible, but being empowered by his spirit, we are, we're able to, to try and live it out, to see the righteousness which he planted within us come out of us and bear fruit. And so an ongoing hunger and thirst for righteousness should characterize our lives now. What that means, what that looks like, 
we'll turn our attention to next time. Because we're already out of time. But we're going to return to this, this concept of hungering and thirsting for righteousness one more time. This glacier just has more to see than we have time for in, in one hour. But the first thing is the most important thing. That you just leave here today certain that you have gained righteousness in only one way, in Christ. Today is when our nation celebrates Independence Day. But if you don't know Christ... Today must be your dependence day. And I just pray that your eyes have been opened to the fact that because of your unrighteousness, you are completely and totally dependent on Christ to save you. Whether you know that or not, that's true. You're, you're dependent on him. He's the only life preserver. But his salvation is given only one way. It's by those who declare their dependence on him. You, you've lived in independence long enough. And only gone away from God. But, but declare your dependence on him by faith. Blessed are those who are dependent. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for his righteousness. That takes them to the foot of the cross. Those who go there and just stay there and live there. They will be satisfied. Here and, and hereafter. And so I pray you meet the Lord Jesus there today. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we we do bow before you in your throne. And uh, all of us must confess our sin, our unrighteousness. Who here among us can can live perfectly before you? We don't even come close to approaching the rightness, the righteousness you demand. That characterizes you, Lord. You are perfect. You are holy. Something which we take for granted. And I pray all of us bear this conviction this morning. Some even unto salvation. Any here have never come to the depth of that valley of, of where their sin has brought them and open their eyes to it. And may, may it be happened or may it happen this morning, Lord, that you, you open their eyes to see where they really are before you. And that's the only place they will see Christ, the savior, the, the door to the kingdom. All of us though, as we're convicted of our sin though, may we, may we rejoice because Christ has come. He's taken us through the door. We, we have been given righteousness. And by faith in him, Lord, now you, your smile never departs from us. You're our good shepherd. We shall not want. We have want of nothing because we have Christ. The one who has Christ has everything. And build these truths in our heart. And may we rest in them and live out the righteousness you have planted in us. All for your glory, for your kingdom. And until your kingdom comes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.